Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Son of Adam. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December the 18th, 2016, the fourth Sunday in Advent. Dennis Covington calls his new memoir, Revelation, a search for faith in a violent religious world. His story makes for difficult reading, and yet in many ways it's an authentic response to three of our biggest challenges at Christmas. Secular consumerism, religious sentimentality, and political despair. It's like Covington is channeling the psalmist this week who begs of God, come and save us, restore us, you fed us the bread of tears, and made us drink tears by the bowlful. Return to us, look down on us, revive us. Revelation connects Covington's Christian journey in and out of faith with his family history, the current events of today, his travels around the world, and the witnesses to faith that he sees in the people he meets which is to say that he does what each one of us must do in our own search for authentic faith in our violent world. He travels to places of extremity and discovers faith, not so much despite suffering and violence, but precisely in and because of that apparent absence of the presence of God. He quotes Kayla Mueller, the American aid worker who was abducted and then murdered by ISIS in 2015. Mueller said, some people find God in church. Some people find God in nature. Some people find God in love. I find God in suffering. In Juarez, Mexico, by some measure the most violent city in the world, Covington participates in an annual burning of an effigy of Judas. He spends a week at a lunatic asylum out in the Mexican desert. He circles back to his youth in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights years, his mother's cancer and nervous breakdown, his brother's lifelong mental illness, and his own alcoholism, bankruptcy, and psychiatric hospitalizations. Most of Revelation, though, describes Covington's experiences in the violent borderlands of Turkey and Syria, particularly in Antioch and Aleppo. There he experiences the horrific sufferings of others, which he calls a definition of faith as clear as any in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Among those who have nothing and who have experienced just about the worst of everything, he also finds faith. One grief-stricken father, holding a headless little girl, put it this way, We bring our case before God, before God alone, for humanity has failed us. That's what Psalm 80 this week does. It's what Covington tries to do. And it's what we can all do at Christmas. We confess that humanity has failed us, all of our many false hopes for good news, our divisive politics, 
our love affair with technology, our self-help schemes. We bring all the violence and suffering of our world, all of our personal brokenness, and lay it before God. And with the psalmist implore him, come and save us. And then, in a sort of call and response that's separated by a thousand years, we listen to the Christmas gospel respond to the cry of the psalmist in Matthew chapter 121. He will save his people. The story of Jesus shows us the human face of God. It's a story not about sentimentality, but about suffering. The first Jewish believers would connect Jesus to the suffering servant of Isaiah. The Apostles' Creed confesses rather starkly that, quote, he suffered. Christmas begins this story with a young mother who gives birth in a barn, for Joseph and Mary were wandering and homeless when they were turned away at the inn. The young family fled to pagan Egypt, where they found asylum. The political ironies in the flight to Egypt are remarkable. The infant son of God fled as a displaced refugee to a foreign country, Egypt. That is, Israel's sworn and symbolic enemy that had oppressed the Hebrews for 430 years. The place where Pharaoh had unleashed his own infanticide against the firstborn Israelite children became a refuge for Jesus. Whereas the pagan magi of Persia worshipped the baby Jesus, Herod of Rome tried to kill him. The magi disobeyed Herod, and we read that they return home, quote, by another route, end quote. When he learned that the magi had tricked him, Herod erupted in a furious rage and murdered all the male children two years old and younger who lived in Bethlehem in its infanticy. And so in a few days, the church liturgy will pivot sharply to a most unlikely feast day, the slaughter of the innocents. The church honors the children of Bethlehem as the first martyrs of the gospel. By the late 5th century, the slaughter of the innocents was the subject not only of church liturgy, art, and literature, but also mentioned in culture at large. The baby Jesus will grow up to be the wandering troublemaker with no place to lay his head. Rejected by his own family as insane, ostracized by the religious establishment as a boundary breaker, abandoned by his closest followers, he will be executed as a criminal by the Roman government. These stories, the very antithesis of Hallmark happy talk, connect quite viscerally to our own world, in which 60 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes, in which Syria bombs its own hospitals, where the lifeless bodies of little children wash ashore as so much flotsam. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook, but after the terrorist attacks in Nigeria, Sharm el-Sheikh, Beirut, Paris, Ankara, and Bamako, I saw the perfect sardonic post. It read, 
It's too bad that we don't have a narrative about Middle Eastern refugees spurned by society to help us think about these tragedies. Paul calls Jesus the good news of God in the epistle for this week. Whereas the very first sentence of Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, son of Abraham, Luke describes him as the son of Adam. That is, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the son of all humanity. This is a story for everyone. It originated with our Jewish forebears. It included Persian astrologers in enemy Egypt. It's for those in a lunatic asylum in the Mexican desert, for the children of Syria, for our very own broken hearts and homes. And so we call. Lord, we bring our case before you, before you alone, for humanity has failed us. And God responds, the Lord himself will give you a sign. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He will save his people. For books this week, I review Curtis White. The title, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. Brooklyn Melville House, 2015. This book is 284 pages. Curtis White does not identify himself as a Christian, but I read his book because I believe that it explores a deeply important aspect of living Christianly in our world today. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul calls us not to conform to the world, but to be transformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Martin Luther King Jr. called this transformed nonconformity. The Gospel of John describes living very much in the world without being a worldly person. And so, in the language of Curtis White's subtitle, we're called to live humanly in our inhuman world. White has established himself as a cultural contrarian and a gadfly in a dozen or so books, and that has an inherent appeal to me. This book appears to be a repackaging of material that previously appeared in magazines and journals, and in fact it isn't about big data per se. His overall thesis is a good one. Human beings are not just Darwinian survivalists who only need adaptive fitness. Rather, we are maximalists who need meaningful narratives in order to flourish. Food, for example, is about community and sharing and not just nourishment. Sex is about much more than procreation. Unfortunately, everywhere you turn in our culture, the stories and narratives are driven by what White calls techno-capitalism. He explores this in five different areas. Economy, science, spirituality, nature, and art. 
In the last part of the book, he urges us toward, quote, something worth being loyal to, end quote. This is a good and important message, but I found White's writing style to be a huge and irritating distraction. Satire is one thing. Glib sarcasm and gross generalities are quite another. It would be nice if the world was as binary as black and white as he paints it, but reality is a lot more complex and ambiguous than he admits. For a better take on living counterculturally in our technological society, I recommend the works of Jacques Ellul, Jaron Lanier, Yevgeny Morozov, and Dave Eggers. Once again, the title of the book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. The author is Curtis White. For movies this week, I review Through the Woods, an Appalachian Adventure album, 2014. The Okie Dokie Brothers, childhood friends and current bandmates Joe Melander and Justin Lansing, won a Grammy for Best Children's Album of the Year for their first album, which was called Can You Canoe? A Mississippi River Adventure 2012. They followed up that successful formula, a CD along with a DVD, with this second effort. Based upon a one-month trek along the Appalachian Trail in May of 2013. As we see in the movie, during their hike they met local musicians, wrote some more songs, and relished the history, crazy instruments, and various styles of bluegrass mountain music. Like its predecessor, Through the Woods was also nominated for a Grammy. A third effort, based upon a one-month horseback trip across the Continental Divide in June of 2015, is called Saddle Up. The stories and music, said one musician, are the ways that we hold on to our heritage. All three movie albums are pitched for kids, but I thoroughly enjoyed watching this one-hour whimsy of some seriously good music. It's an ethnographic delight. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And one final note, this movie should not be confused with Bill Bryson's similar sounding A Walk in the Woods, which is also about walking the Appalachian Trail. Once again, the title of the movie, which is in fact a soundtrack by the Okie Dokie Brothers, it's called Through the Woods, an Appalachian Adventure Album. And finally, for this last Sunday in Advent, we've posted a classic poem by John Donne. It's called Nativity, and in fact, it picks up some of the themes of our lectionary essay. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb, now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough, now into the world to come. 
But oh, for thee, for him, hath the inn no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effects of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him eat into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. John Dunn, the title of the poem, Nativity. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December the 18th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. And Merry Christmas to all of us from Journey with Jesus.